But I said this, my lawyer told me almost a hundred times today during the interrogation, on advice of counsel, I am asserting my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. That's probably a good idea, Alex Jones. I think you're in enough trouble already. Just saying. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Uh, from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, where it's very, very cold today. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Bird and Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, and muckraker. And all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, we got a lot to get to, including uh, more trouble for Alex Jones. So sad. So (laughs) sad what's happened to him. You know, I used to go on his program quite a bit. I know. That was a long time ago. Yes, before he was insane. Anyway, a lot of milestones uh, today for us here, the uh, Brad blog. Uh, at bradblog.com is now officially in our 19th year of troublemaking and muckraking and blogging and broadcasting. And as it turns out, by rather complete coincidence, in fact, we also knocked out our 1200th episode of the Green News Report for you today. Yes, we did. That's coming up a little bit later with, of course, Desiree Doyen. Hi, Des. Hey. But as ever, our thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue what we try to do every day at the blog and here on the broadcast and on the Green News Report as we try, even if we don't always succeed, but we try to focus on stuff that actually matters, even if it's a, uh, a, a year or two or five or ten or in the case of our warnings about the fragility of uh, and vulnerabilities of our electoral systems. Oh, I don't know, 18 years or so. Before people begin to understand what is actually at threat and how quickly it can all disappear. Of course, Brad blog readers, broadcast listeners, Green News Report listeners know all of that. They are just joining us, Des, and waiting <laughs> for the rest of the world to figure to it catch out. Up. It is still unclear that folks in the media fully understand any of this, especially when it comes to our American democracy. 
it's certainly unclear they don't get it regarding global or global climate emergency, in my opinion. Uh, but we're going to keep trying as long as we can, uh, as long as all of you keep helping us at bradblog.com slash donate, because, yes, we are truly independent and rely only on listeners and readers to keep going year after year after year. We have no sponsors or political organizations or corporate funding of any kind that we have to somehow, you know, get their approval. No, we have you. So. Thank you for helping uh, celebrate all of our milestones today, if you can, via bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. Okay, let us start with our democracy today, or what is left of it. And believe it or not, we've got some good news. Some what? Some good news on that front. Seriously. As a matter of fact, two good pieces of news, even if both are, for now, a little bit marginal, but you know what? We'll take what we can for the moment. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, in this, uh, what is now, as I told you, it would be a state-by-state, lawsuit-by-lawsuit slog that we are all now in after Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin decided to knife both their own party and democracy itself a week or so ago. When it comes to voting rights and the fight against voter suppression and election subversion, you may recall a I think it was a week and a half or so ago, uh, as we reported at the time, a Waukesha County judge in the great swing state of Wisconsin ruled that absentee ballot drop boxes cannot be used anymore in the Badger state. At the time, we noted that though they had been used for years in the Badger State without incident, it was only after some 500 or so of them were deployed across the state, again, without incident, to help keep voters safe during uh, the pandemic, during the 2020 presidential election in the uh, key swing state that narrowly went to Biden in 2020. Uh, we told you that this wingnutty circuit court judge, Michael Boren, determined state law allows absentee ballots to be, to be returned only in person or by mail, but not in a ballot drop box. So who knew uh, for years that every county in the state for years on end, apparently, had been violating the law. Even the Bipartisan State Elections Commission, uh, which had uh, long offered advice on how to best deploy Dropbox, dro drop boxes, even they apparently had no idea, it seems. But Judge Boren's ruling also meant that political groups could not pick up absentee ballots for voters and also more of note in Wisconsin, that people could not deliver ballots for ill family members and neighbors because you can only apparently return by in person or by mail. You can't give it to a family member to put into a even to a mailbox. So it, it happened, uh, you know, to be literally nine degrees Fahrenheit in uh, Milwaukee today as I was putting this story together. Nine degrees. But guess what? If you are sick. Too bad, loser. If you think you can just give your ballot to your wife to put it in a mailbox for you, well, think again. Suit up and get to that mailbox, loser, in nine degrees weather in Wisconsin winters. 
Boren's ruling barring the use of all drop boxes would have an effect on how ballots can be returned in next month's low turnout primary for the spring elections in the state and much more far reaching consequences in the fall when far more people will vote. In the state's high-profile contest for governor and U.S. senator, not to mention every single U.S. House seat, as well as state legislative races uh, coming up in November. The judge's ruling came in response to a lawsuit that was filed by two plaintiffs represented by the right-wing anti-democracy Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. And while drop boxes could no longer be used in the judge's opinion... As the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel noted at the time, that uh, voters would still be able to drop ballots into much less secure blue postal boxes that are on street corners around the state. So uh, that was a week and a half or so ago. Now a bit of encouraging news from the Court of Appeals in Wisconsin today on on Monday. They unanimously reinstated absentee ballot drop boxes for the state's February primary. Only for the February primary? For now. Mm. The order comes one day before election clerks were scheduled to send voters absentee ballots in the race for Milwaukee mayor and other local contests in the state. But yes, the appeals court decision for now is only in effect for the February 15 election. The court could still decide what rules can be used in elections after the February primary and any ruling they make could eventually make its way to the right wing state Supreme Court there. The state's bipartisan election commission asked the fourth district court of appeals to block Judge Boren's lower court ruling, arguing it may cause, quote, voter confusion and uncertainty during the upcoming spring elections. The appellate court agreed with the commission, writing in its decision that some voters may have already deposited their ballots in drop boxes. So, quote, at this stage of the election process, they write, there is significant uncertainty as to whether these votes would be counted. Through no fault of the voter at all. Just because a judge in the middle of things decided to change stuff. That's just I'm glad that the Court of Appeals stepped in to say, yeah, those votes still need to be counted. And it's legitimate to use a Dropbox. The appeals court ruled, quote, given this situation, the risk of confusion and possible disenfranchisement is compelling. Well, yes, of course it's compelling. It was uh, compelling to Judge Boren. That's the reason why he did it in the first place. He was hoping to cause confusion and disenfranchisement. We will, of course, continue to watch the story with rather big potential consequences uh, in the state as the year moves forward. But for now, some marginally good news there. I should also note that separately, Republican uh, former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Cleefish, who is hoping to challenge Democratic Governor Tony Evers in Wisconsin this fall, she is also suing to prevent voters from conveniently and safely being able to use a secure drop box to deliver their ballots. And the extremely gerrymandered Wisconsin state legislature is also trying to figure out a way to prevent their use as well, even as they are somewhat limited in what they can do, uh, given the way the statutes are written, given the way, uh, given the fact that they have a Democratic governor in the state who actually supports voting rights for Wisconsin residents. But uh, anyway, some marginally encouraging news. We will take what we can get. That out of the critical Badger State today. 
And here's a bit more marginally good news, I think, out of of all places, out of Alabama. To get to Alabama, you'll be surprised to learn, we have to go through Ohio. <laughs> okay. uh, a week or so ago, we had reported on Ohio's state Supreme Court finding both the new state legislative and House district maps that were drawn up by the state's GOP uh, majority redistricting uh, commission. The Supreme Court of Ohio found them. And by the way, it's a Republican uh, majority Supreme Court. Nonetheless, that court found both of those maps to be in violation of the state's constitution, which, when all is said and done, could end up netting. If they follow the law, could end up netting as many as five new Democrats in the state's congressional delegation, at least in good years for Democrats, as compared to the extreme partisan gerrymander that was in place over the last 10 years from the state's state GOP's extreme gerrymandering of that state for the past decade. A 2015 ballot initiative, however, adopted by more than 70 percent of Buckeye state voters back, you know, in, in mid-decade, their vote is now making a difference in what happens in Ohio. It has made gerrymandering of the state much more difficult after the 2020 census because, among other things, both legislative and House districts now, according to the state constitution, must reflect the general statewide partisan preferences of voters, which, even though the state has been trending red in recent years, it is still a fairly evenly divided state which you wouldn't know from the way these Republicans had gerrymandered it over the past 10 years and had and as they had tried so far unsuccessfully to do again after the 2020 census. Now, in Ohio, the Supreme Court ordered the redistricting committee to draw up new maps and the court retained the right to approve or disapprove of the redrawn new maps. So we will continue watching that situation closely. But in deep red Alabama, of all places, we have some similarly encouraging news today. And this is uh, actually in federal court, a panel of three federal judges Two of them, Trump appointees, rejected the new Alabama House district map that was drawn by the state's Republican-controlled legislature on Monday in two lawsuits against filed against dopey Twitter-blocking Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill. Remember him? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, no time to go into those details. Anyway... They, uh, the, the lawsuits had alleged that the district lines had been racially gerrymandered. That's something that can still be determined in federal court, unlike partisan gerrymanders, which the uh, stolen Supreme Court a year or two ago said, well, we, we can't have anything. We can make no decisions on uh, partisan gerrymanders. That's completely up to state courts. Well, this is a racial gerrymander in Alabama. So according good to news, these suits. at least racial gerrymanders are still... Unlawful, <laughs> in theory. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. But the uh, the panel of uh, three federal judges found that the uh, plaintiffs were likely to succeed in arguing that the current map, which allows only one district in the state to have a majority of black voters, violates the ban on racist voter discrimination in the Voting Rights Act. That is Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, by the way. 
If you're keeping track at home, that's the one that has not yet been completely destroyed by the U.S. Supreme Court, unlike Section 5. Anyway, from the uh, from the federal court's uh, ruling on Monday, quote, based on the findings of fact and conclusion of law explained below, including our assessment of the credibility of expert witnesses, we conclude that the plaintiffs are substantially likely to establish that the plan violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. More particularly, we conclude that the plaintiffs are substantially likely to establish each part of the controlling Supreme Court test, including one that black Alabamians are sufficiently numerous to constitute a voting age majority in a second congressional district. They note that black Alabamians uh, comprise approximately 27% of the state's population, and Alabama has seven congressional seats. And yet... They only have voting power to uh, choose their own uh, candidate in one of those seven congressional seats over the past 10 years. And if this map had held up uh, for the next 10 years as well, the court also notes that Alabama's black population in the challenge districts is sufficiently geographically compact to constitute a voting age majority in a second reasonably configured district. Therefore, the Republican-controlled state legislature was given 14 days to draw a new map that has, quote, two districts in which black voters either comprise a voting age majority or something quite close to it, according to the court. If lawmakers fail to do that, the court will appoint their own expert to draw the new lines, according to the order. Noting this ruling, our friend uh, Mark Joseph Stern, legal reporter over at Slate, Dot com uh, tweeted, quote, two Trump nominees signed on to this decision holding that Alabama violated the Voting Rights Act. That's how egregiously and brazenly the state diluted black residents votes. The court's map decision will, of course, likely be appealed. But if it prevails, Democrats stand to gain a second seat in Alabama they got seven congressional seats in total. All but one of them, one of them currently are held by Republican white men, save for Alabama's seventh congressional district, which is uh, represented by the great Terry Sewell, Democrat from Alabama, black congresswoman, uh, Democrat from Alabama. The order comes just a week or so after Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, you may recall, had said with a straight face, quote, states are not engaging in trying to suppress voters whatsoever. Well, tell it to the federal court in Alabama, Mitch, and the two Trump nominees that you rammed through to sit on it. They held in their ruling that under the maps drawn by Alabama state Republicans, quote, black voters have less opportunity than other Alabamians to elect candidates of their choice to Congress. So, as noted, it's, yes, going to be a state-by-state lawsuit-by-lawsuit slog for now. Uh, But for now, at least, some more good news on the redistricting front. For those uh, who still believe in American democracy. Okay, so we have been now that we got the good news for American democracy out of the way, (laughs) that didn't take long. We have been uh, we've been keeping our eyes on the situation, of course, in Ukraine with the buildup of 
Russian troops on the border there of the former Soviet Union satellite country and the persistent drumbeat warnings of an impending invasion by Russia. To hear the U.S. and EU and NATO tell it, even as Russia continues to insist they do not plan to invade and they are only objecting to NATO buildups of uh, theoretically defensive weapons in a number of countries that border Russia as well as military exercises by NATO in the Mediterranean, and that if they were given a guarantee that Ukraine would never be allowed to join NATO, they would withdraw their troop presence on the border, etc. Now, of course, that seems to me should be up to Ukraine, not up to Russia, not up to the U.S., Anyway, we've been keeping our eyes on this, and yesterday on the show, I I tried to break down where things are from all sides of the conflict. But one of the reasons I haven't covered it in great detail on the broadcast to date, in truth, is because I'm having a, a tough time finding experts who are able or willing to sort of explain all the sides of this disturbing and seemingly worsening conflict. There's a lot of chest thumping and and threats that are being made right now, largely coming from the U.S. and its NATO allies, which seems to me to be a very dangerous game when we're dealing with a country like Russia, which, in case anyone has forgotten, also has nuclear weapons. And though nobody seems to you know, think anything like that could actually break out here, a nuclear conflict, the fact is accidents happen in times like this, in the, the fog of war, you know, leading to unpredictable and dangerous turns in highly militarized conflicts and, and even just standoffs, even, you know, ones that start out as sort of cold standoffs. So uh, with all. All of those caveats, I submit this report from TPM's Josh Kavinsky last night, which seems worth noting here today. Uh, As I continue to receive these alerts, alerts on my iPhone, you probably do too. Uh, Like this one from CNN this afternoon. The White House says a Russian invasion of Ukraine, quote, remains imminent, even as diplomatic efforts to defuse the crisis proceed. So there's a lot of panic out there. But as Kavinsky writes, a key Ukrainian national security official sat down today and told the country's allies what they could do to help. Please calm down. But also keep the weapons coming. Now, that seems a bit of a mixed message to me, but hey, we report you decide. Um, the, uh, this is uh, Ukraine's National Security Council chief, Oleski Reznikov told BBC Ukraine on Monday, we are articulating to our partners that we cannot afford to let our economy collapse. So we also need help on that issue and said, after all, if people go into a state of panic, that's a very dangerous situation for the country. We are concerned about the availability of weapons to protect against Russian aggression, he said. And when these weapons began to arrive in our country, this is a plus, he noted, before this was not the case. Reznikov's voice is one of a chorus of Ukrainian officials demanding that people remain calm and that the country's Western backers remain level-headed. The country's president, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, said earlier this month that talks of the crisis was, quote, big hype. 
before suggesting to the Washington Post that the Russians might end up taking Kharkiv, a city of 1.4 million people. It comes as the American, British, Australian and German governments are not calming down and, in fact, uh, ordered partial drawdowns of their embassy staff in Kiev, uh, citing the risk of an impending Russian attack. Both open source analysts and Western intelligence services, according to Kavensky, have said that Russia has moved a massive amount of combat troops to positions near the Ukrainian border. But an analysis published in Ukraine on Monday by the country's former defense minister suggested that a major offensive was unlikely and were it to take place would be weeks away still. Instead, he posited that a hybrid invasion combining cyber attacks and psychological warfare would be more likely. Ukrainian officials like Reznikov and Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba have repeated versions of that analysis, that the threat that they face is as much psychological as it is physical. Kuleba uh, recently tweeted, quote, Years of Russian aggression have taught us one thing. Escalations are always accompanied by heating up the information space. The aim is to weaken us from within. He wrote, don't buy scaremongering. Army and diplomacy are protecting Ukraine. Ukrainians win with a warm heart and a cool head. A hashtag trended on social media in Ukraine, reading, uh, uh, quote, we're prepared as Ukrainians traded tips on how to prep for everything from bombardment to helping children deal with war-induced trauma, etc., in Kharkiv, a uh, man on the street interviews Kharkiv, the the uh, the city apparently that uh, even Zelensky believes Russians may end up taking. Uh, but there, a uh, man man on the street interviews showed people at a loss when asked if they had plans for how to react in the event of a Russian invasion. One older man replied, "I wouldn't want that to happen. What's there to do? We have matches. We have salt, sugar." One person said he'd send his family to the DACA, take a machine gun, and go to war. But most said that they doubted that an invasion would take place and that if it did, they weren't sure what they would do. Reznikov, the Ukrainian defense official, told the BBC he did not regard the collection of Russian forces forces uh, stationed along the Ukrainian border as enough to stage an invasion. This was, you know, him saying this on Monday this week. He said, this is their territory, talking about the troops in Russia. This is their territory. They have the right to move to the left and to the right, he said. Is it unpleasant for us? Yes, it's unpleasant, but it's not news to us. The number one task for Russia is to shake up the internal situation in our country, he added. And today, unfortunately, they are very successful. So, as noted, not entirely sure what to make of that, but I submit it here for your consideration as we continue to hear what sounds a lot to me like drumbeats of war or drumbeats of an impending invasion any moment. A lot of those drumbeats are coming from the U.S., essentially, and its media outlets, which really, really seem to like such things. They like impending war. They like war. And in fact, it may come, 
but you know, this is serious. I'm not trying to downplay it, but I think there's a lot more going on here than we are adequately being informed about by the U.S. media. You know, so as we have helpful information to offer, information that might help you to keep a level head, as we have that information to offer, we will. When we don't, we won't. All right, quick break, and we are back with some January 6th accountability news and a whole lot of pleading the fifth going on by a whole lot of near top tier folks in Trump's failed attempt to steal the 2020 election by overthrowing American democracy itself. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Well, uh, please allow me to introduce myself. I'm Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. You are listening to the Bradcast. Welcome back to it. Yeah, there you go. The uh, the great independent investigative journalist Marcy Wheeler of Empty Wheel has been covering the fallout from the deadly January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and the indictments and the court cases being brought against those who attacked the Capitol on behalf of Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election. She's been covering all of that, I think, about as close as as closely as anyone in the nation. She's been on this show a couple of times over the past month or two, and each time she has uh, focused at least uh, partly on right-wing conspiracy theorist, grifter, and radio host Alex Jones as a key player in the attempted insurrection. Uh, Not really getting enough attention, I don't think, from the media concerning his role in what happened on January 6th, at least according to Marcy, um, who has suggested that he was a critical organizer on the ground that day, that he was in very close touch or... He's otherwise just one step away from essentially Donald Trump in uh, in his attempt to overthrow the Constitution by blocking the Electoral College confirmation of Joe Biden's victory on January 6. If charges uh, are eventually brought against Alex Jones, she seems to be arguing, uh, and that if he could then be flipped, well, he knows a lot about what Donald Trump's specific role was in all of this. So uh, this story, with that caveat, uh, that background, that context, this story caught my attention today. Uh, here's the version from NBC News this afternoon. Conspiracy theorist and radio host Alec Jones said on his show on Tuesday that he was deposed by the House committee investigating January 6th and that he exercised his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, quote, almost a hundred (laughs) times. Really? Why did you do that, Alex? 
You used to pretend to be a constitutional law and order guy, uh, you know, going back when I, yes, used to appear on your radio show all the time back during the Bush years before you became an insane, desperate grifter, Alex. Jones uh, said he testified remotely on Monday and, quote, it was extremely interesting, to say the least. But I said this, my lawyer told me almost a 100 times today during the interrogation, on advice of counsel, I am asserting my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. The questions were overall pretty reasonable, uh, and I wanted to answer the questions. Did you? But at the same time, it's a good thing I didn't because uh -huh. I'm the type that tries to answer things correctly, even uh -huh. if I don't know all the answers. Uh -huh. And they can then try to claim that that's perjury. Because about half the questions I didn't know the answer to. Uh -huh. And a bunch of them were emails I'd never seen and planning things I'd never seen, uh -huh. at least from memory. Ah. But I obviously couldn't answer under oath because then they could, if I said something even halfway wrong, put me in prison. No. And, and so I'm not going to give Schiff and those people what they want. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's not how it works. No? I, uh, if you don't remember something, I've been deposed before. It was not a criminal case. Everything was fine. But I've been deposed before, and the lawyer was very clear. If you don't know something, say, I don't know, or I do not remember. And it was not very hard. It was not very scary. It was not very difficult. And if you didn't have to plead the fifth. I didn't have to plead the fifth. If I was asked a question that I didn't know the answer to, I said I don't know the answer to that. If I was asked something that I did not remember anything about, I said I don't remember anything about that. It's not really that hard. So when he says the questions were uh, were overall pretty reasonable and I wanted to answer the questions, but at the same time, it's a good thing I didn't because I'm the type that tries to answer things correctly, even if I don't know all the answers. And then they can kind of claim that's perjury. Well, they don't kind of claim that's perjury. They have the information to know if you are lying. So if you want to tell the truth, tell the truth. If you don't remember, tell them you don't remember. If you don't know, tell them you don't know. But when you lie about those answers, yes, they can claim that's kind of perjury. Because it is. Because that's perjury. Yeah, if they have all of your texts and your emails, as apparently they do, yeah. you can just say, look, I don't remember that email. I don't recall ever seeing that email. But, you know, you can't lie about it. Well, uh, he's not taking any chances. He's just pleading the fifth. Didn't do anything wrong, but he's pleading the fifth. Uh, in a letter to Alex Jones last month, the committee's chair, Benny Thompson, Democrat from Mississippi, said the uh, committee had evidence that Jones was involved in planning and funding the rally at the Ellipse immediately before the January 6th riot, that he was uh, supposed to lead rally goers to the Capitol that day. Thompson also noted that Jones uh, heavily promoted the rally on his shows, including referring to then-President Donald Trump's tweet that the rally would be, quote, wild and one of the most historic events in American history. Jones said on his show after the riot that the White House had asked him ahead of January 6th to lead the march to the Capitol. That's on video. He said all of these things on his own. So, you yeah. know, are these? Th did he take the fifth on uh, agreeing that he said the things that he is on video and audio tape having said? I don't know. He said uh, Tuesday that his, uh, quote, White House connection 
was Carolyn Wren, a Republican operative and fundraiser who helped organize the rally, but that she did not actually work for the White House. Jones said she was there that day behind the stage with the Trumps and the family. He added the committee was already aware of his interactions with her because, quote, they have everything that's already on my phones. He said, I saw my text messages to Carolyn Wren and Cindy Chafian and some of the event organizers right there. So they already have everything and they already know I didn't do anything, he said. Wren and Chafian were issued subpoenas by the committee last year. So I suspect, uh, yeah, they probably turned over the text messages to and from Alex Jones that were on their phones. Despite his calls to action before the rally, Jones was seen on video outside the Capitol during the riot, urging people not to be violent. Jones's appearance before the committee was a bit of a surprise, however, because he actually has a lawsuit pending in Washington, D.C., in federal court, challenging the panel's authority to subpoena him. Yet he showed up anyway for some reason. Maybe that's because he has seen how even Donald Trump was denied the use of executive privilege by his own stolen and packed Supreme Court last week. Maybe he's seen how uh, uh, Steve Bannon faces... Uh, indictment for refusing to answer that subpoena. Jones decided maybe he, you know, maybe I should sit down and talk with the committee and just claim the fifth instead of trying to fight against uh, the appearance. The suit was uh, was filed about a month. Uh, Jones's suit was filed about a month after an unrelated court defeat for Jones. In November, a judge found him liable for damage in defamation suits brought by the parents of children who were killed in the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Connecticut. Jones had claimed repeatedly that the shooting was a giant hoax, that nobody was actually killed that day at Sandy Hook. And uh, he was taken to court over those claims, and now he has lost four different court cases brought against him in two separate states by parents and others, and will likely have to pay up millions of dollars in the bargain as his legal and financial situation is likely to go from very bad to very worse in the uh, in the coming weeks. In any event, in a related story again to January 6th and pleading the 5th, attorney John Eastman has filed suit in court to try to block his former employee, his former employer uh, from hand, hand, handing over approximately 19,000 emails that are being requested by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack. That lawsuit is not going well for John Eastman. CNN Justice reporter Caitlin Polance uh, reported from the case on Monday that it was established in court that Eastman worked for former President Donald Trump without getting permission from his employer at the time, Chapman University. That's out here in Southern California. According to his attorney, Eastman worked for Trump during many relevant moments throughout all of this without asking permission of the private university, which is uh, based down there near Anaheim. Judge David Carter, who's presiding over the case, asked for specifics about what kind of work Eastman was doing for Trump. He admitted to briefing hundreds of state legislators and also said that he was at the Willard Hotel. 
near the White House with Trump strategists on January 6th. You'll recall the Willard Hotel was used as uh, what they regarded as a war room after the November election to try and steal it from the American people. He met also with Trump himself and Vice President Mike Pence on January 3 of 2021. And it was 10 days later that Eastman finally resigned from the university. During the case, uh, CNN uh, uh, reporter Anna Cabrera tweeted that Chapman University decided they would not help Eastman in his attempt to block his university emails from the January 6th committee. As Yahoo News investigative journalist Michael Isakoff picks up the story today, John Eastman, the Republican law professor who authored memos outlining how Trump could overturn the results of the 2020 election, invoked his Fifth Amendment rights apparently 146 times when he was questioned by the January 6th committee last month. This guy is a law professor. So I guess he knows that he can invoke his Fifth Amendment rights, and I guess as a law professor, he perhaps has good reason to know why maybe he should 146 times. Uh, that came out at, at the uh, court challenge as part of his court challenge late on Monday from a lawyer representing the, uh, the House panel. The disclosure came in that case before U.S. District Judge David Carter in Santa Ana, California, on uh, Eastman's suit to block the subpoena from the committee directing Chapman University to turn over more than 19,000 emails relating to his work for Trump in the months following the 2020 election. The Eastman emails are considered crucial evidence by the committee because, in its view, the law professor's memos laid out a roadmap for a constitutional coup. They argued that Vice President Pence could refuse to accept the certified results of the Electoral College vote, declaring Biden the winner. Pence publicly rejected that advice from Eastman, agreeing with the vast majority of legal experts who said he did not have that power to overturn, to reverse the voters. But uh, Trump backed Eastman's legal views and lashed out at Pence, uh, calling his vice president, calling on his president, uh, vice president to show extreme courage during the votes uh, certification during that rally on January 6, which all resulted, as you know, in his supporters then storming the Capitol, assaulting Capitol police officers and even chanting hang Mike Pence. Eastman was questioned by the committee in early uh, in a uh, deposition in early December but he refused to answer any questions on the grounds that it could violate his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination for potential criminal activity. Just days after the deposition, Eastman sued the committee to protect his emails from disclosure, arguing they were protected attorney-client privilege. In response to pointed questioning from the judge on Monday, Eastman's lawyer said his client has not even produced a privilege log which is a log essentially identifying what the emails are, which ones are, in fact, uh, uh, protected by a certain privilege, in this case, by attorney client privilege. He had not even produced a log uh, of those 19,000 emails. Eastman's argument suffered a blow when the lawyer for Chapman University 
whose computer hosts the emails. So, yes, they have access to those emails. When the attorney told the judge that the professor had no right to use the university email system for his representation of Trump because it was partisan work on behalf of political candidates, which is a violation of the university's status as a nonprofit, any use of uh, by Eastman of Chapman emails on behalf of Trump was, quote, improper and unauthorized, said a lawyer for Chapman. I likened it to contraband, he said. Yeah, employers generally don't like it when you use your real job email to subsidize your coup plotting. <laughs> I guess they don't. Uh, East, uh, Eastman was once apparently a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas because, of course, he was. Uh, and he played a apparently central role in developing these strategies for Trump to try to cling to office, uh, even though state electoral boards had affirmed Biden's victory in the election. But Judge Carter seemed most focused on why there had been no privilege log developed so that the law professor could specifically identify which of his communications he believed to be attorney client privileged. He demanded that Eastman be provided with those emails by Chapman that Eastman then review them. And after consulting with the January 6th committee, lawyers come up with a plan for who should resolve any disputes about those emails to determine whether they were uh, attorney client privileged or not. So I would say, yeah, Carter, Judge Carter uh, has asked for a status report on all of this by next Monday. So get to work, Eastman. Yeah, the committee is likely to be getting thousands of his emails, I would say, emails potentially to all of the top players very, very soon as the fight for accountability continues to reach closer and closer into the uh, well, it's already into the Trump White House with Mark Meadows as it reaches closer to the president's actual desk, I get, I guess. So there you go. Some uh, more marginally encouraging good news today. It's nothing but marginal good news today. <laughs> hey, I'll take marginal. I will, too. Speaking of accountability for members of the uh, Trump White House, here is some maybe that we have mentioned previously would likely be coming, both here on the broadcast and in our Green News report. Democratic state senators in Virginia are signaling they have the votes now to block Andrew Wheeler, Donald Trump's controversial second head of the Environmental Protection Agency and a former, former, former HuffPo, former coal lobbyist to uh, stop him from becoming the state's top environmental officer under Virginia's newly sworn in governor, Glenn Youngkin. Youngkin announced earlier this month that he had picked Wheeler for his secretary of natural resources, a choice which enraged Democratic lawmakers and environmental groups. Democrats hold a very slim 2119 majority in the Virginia State Senate, meaning that a party line vote would, in fact, sink Wheeler's nomination. If a single Democrat, however, supports Wheeler, then the lieutenant governor, now a Republican, would cast the tie-breaking vote in that case. In a statement late last week, Democratic State Senator uh, Cray Deeds, chair of the committee that considers gubernatorial nominees and submits resolutions confirming their appointment, noted that he expects Wheeler's nomination to be rejected. 
I think the Democratic caucus is pretty united, Deeds told HuffPost on Monday. I hope so. That's good news, right? Yeah. And, you know, there was one thing that was mentioned by the Climate Cabinet Action Fund. They're a fund that is trying to get more state-level accountability for state legislators on their environmental records, similar Mm -hmm. to how the League of Conservation Voters does that for Congress with a scorecard. They said, quote, we lost the Virginia majority in the House of Delegates, that's the lower house, Mm -hmm. by only 690 votes mm. across the entire state. Yeah. That's it. 694 yeah. votes across three different districts. And they point out that, hey, state elections matter. And here we can see state elections really do they matter. They certainly do. The, um, the decision by the Democrats here seemingly, we'll see if this comes to pass, but uh, it it comes after this uh, detailed letter that we reported on at the time from 150 former EPA employees sent to those Democrats earlier in the month detailing much of his Wheeler's record at the EPA, accusing him of having, quote, pursued an extremist approach, methodically weakening EPA's ability to protect public health and the environment instead of favoring polluters. Of course, that is exactly why Glenn Youngkin wanted to hire him in the first place. Oh, indeed, yes. Several other Democratic state senators, including some of the caucus's more moderate members, have voiced concerns about Wheeler or uh, their outright opposition to him. And like Deeds, some have expressed confidence that they will succeed in defeating the nomination. So we will keep our eyes on that. And it is rather unusual, apparently, in Virginia. Governor's cabinet picks, uh, HuffPost, HuffPo reports, typically sail through confirmation the last time any uh, a, go- uh, a governor's nomination was blocked it was way back in 2006 when Republicans rejected then Democratic Governor Tim Kaine's nomination for secretary of the Commonwealth. Uh, Maria Owens Powell, the president of the AFGE Council 238, the union representing more than 7,500 EPA employees nationwide, wrote that Wheeler, quote, destroyed or weakened dozens of environmental safeguards at EPA with the sole intention of bolstering polluting industry profit margins. We believe he will do so again if you confirm his nomination. Owens Powell wrote to the Virginia state senators. So hopefully they are hearing that. So again, some encouraging news today. See, not everything is horrible, though we haven't yet gotten to our Green (laughs) News report yet. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, it's a very special Green News Report today, sort of. It's a, uh, a week of landmarks here on the Bradcast and Brad Blog, as, yeah. as you will find out in our latest Green News Report. The pace at which societies are producing and releasing new chemicals into the environment is not consistent with staying within safe operating space for humanity. Scientists say chemical pollution threatens the stability of the global ecosystem. Escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine set to royal global energy prices. 
Shell Carbon Capture Facility emits more greenhouse gases than it captures. Plus... Look, to be able to say, made in Ohio, made in America, is what we used to always be able to say 25, 30 years ago. Automakers call Intel's new Ohio manufacturing hub critical to EV production. All of those critical stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Tonight is the 1200th episode of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Oh, big whoop, Colbert. This is the 1200th episode of the Green News Report. Emmy, please. This is our Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen. Uh, You know, you don't get Emmys for radio. Oh, don't I know it. What do you got for us today, Desi Doyen? Well, geopolitical tensions are ratcheting up. CNN reports the Biden State Department is negotiating agreements with a swath of nations to deliver liquefied natural gas to Europe in the event that a Russian invasion of Ukraine leads to shortages. Russia currently provides about 40 percent of Europe's natural gas supply, but Reuters reports that leverage could work both ways. Germany has signaled that if Russian President Vladimir Putin attempts an invasion, then Germany could halt the Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline from Russia, which has been built but not yet permitted to open. And, you know, 45 percent of Russia's economy comes from energy production and sales. If they can't keep that going, they're in a lot of trouble. A war between Russia and Ukraine would have ripple effects far beyond Europe, roiling global energy markets and exacerbating inflation. In other news, scientists are sounding the alarm that a cocktail of chemical pollution has reached a level that threatens the stability of the global ecosystem. Mm, A cocktail of chemical pollution. Chemical pollutants include plastics, pesticides, industrial compounds, and antibiotics being released into the environment that together risk generating large-scale environmental harms, damaging biological and physical processes that underpin life. Researchers at the Stockholm Resilience Center say that manufacturing of synthetic chemicals has increased 50-fold since 1950, and plastic pollution, particularly microplastics, are of deep concern, concluding that, quote, the total mass of plastics now exceeds the total mass of all living mammals. Wow. Here's study co-author Thomas Gamage with Global News. Plastics and their chemicals are, they're in the air, they're in our food, they're in our water, they're in our, in our honey. They found it on the highest mountain peak in the deepest, deepest ocean trenches. I mean, it quite literally is, is everywhere. The study researchers call for a strong global treaty to establish a cap on the production and release of chemical pollutants, and that is on the agenda at the International United Nations Environment Talks next month. So no more chemical cocktails? Hopefully not. Hmm. A carbon capture and storage plant launched by Shell Oil actually emits more greenhouse gases than it has captured. (laughs) The Quest Hydrogen Plant in Alberta, Canada, manufactures hydrogen from natural gas, storing the carbon emissions from the process underground. But a new report from nonprofit firm Global Witness documents that the plant has sequestered only a fraction of the greenhouse gases that the company claims and, in fact, has created more climate warming 
warming emissions in its five years of operations than it has captured. Brilliant! Here in the U.S., a recent Government Accountability Office report warned that the Department of Energy risks wasting billions of taxpayer dollars on notoriously expensive carbon capture demonstration projects unless there is greater oversight. But finally, global supply chain disruptions are hammering production of electric cars and many more products around the world thanks to a shortage of microprocessors. But late last week, computing giant Intel announced it is investing $20 billion to build two massive new computer chip manufacturing hubs in Ohio, the largest in the world, which automakers say will be critical. It won't provide immediate relief, but President Biden called it a key development in the revitalization of U.S. domestic manufacturing and accelerating the shift to electric vehicles while creating jobs. This historic investment for Ohio, one of the largest investments in semiconductor manufacturing in American history. A brand new $20 billion campus, 7,000 construction jobs, 3,000 full-time jobs. Impeach! For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com, where we are celebrating our 18th anniversary of bradblog.com. Take that, Colbert. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your 1200th Green News Report. Twelve hundred in a row, hey! Yeah, hey. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yeah, yeah, as I said, a big week, a landmark week at the Brad Blog. Uh, Twelve hundred episodes of the Green News Report. Eighteen years of bradblog.com. I have no idea how many broadcasts we've done. That I never <laughs> I know. started counting. I couldn't even imagine and beginning I don't even to count want to that. Know. Exactly. I don't even want to know. Anyway, uh, again... The, the process of saving yeah. the world continues. It does, but not without your help. Uh, please consider uh, stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue for, well, I don't know, another 1,200 GNRs, another 18 years of uh, bradblog.com. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see if we make it through the week at this rate. Anyway, thanks to everyone for your support. We got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast or Green News Report or any other, you can download all of it for free at bradblog.com. Maybe if we called it bradblog.com. Plus, people would sign up for uh, <laughs> monthly subscriptions. Uh, anyway, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>